Welcome to the People in the Red Vest, a podcast of the International Federation of Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, the IFRC. I'm your host, Alexandra Sasha Gorishak, and in each episode, we feature inspiring, surprising, and thought-provoking conversations with people who dedicate their lives to helping others. I remember being in a shelter where uh, children were being taught to school, and there was this darling little boy. He was just sitting in the corner, and I went over and talked to him, and this little boy hadn't talked in six months. In six months. Still... But he was getting schooling, three meals a day, surrounded by people who cared. And I'd like to think that he's now speaking some, but he had a safe place. And um, that's what we provide, you know. So I think about the little boy. I think about the people trying to recreate a hospital that had been destroyed. I think about a youth who took on to herself that she could save 40 children. And how could you not want to lead an organization like that? My guest today is Kate Forbes, the new president of the International Federation of the Red Cross and Red Crescent Societies, IFRC. Welcome. Thank you. It's an honor to be here. The presidency of IFRC as the largest humanitarian organization is a huge role in which challenges are complex and compounding. Why do it? Why did you take this role? What do you bring to it? Well, I'll start with the last. Um, I bring 43 years of experience of volunteering for uh, the Red Cross. Uh, started at my local branch in Phoenix uh, and became uh, vice chair of the American Red Cross. Then I was national chair of volunteers, responsible for a million volunteers. And then the last 17 years have been volunteering here at the Federation uh, with my professional expertise in finance and accounting on the Finance Commission and uh, the Art and Risk Committee. But more important than that, I bring a passion for the work that we do and the people we serve and the people who do the work that, of our movement. What do you see as the biggest challenges if we think about climate, migration, misinformation, the rise of misinformation and fake news everywhere, even hate speech, how do you manage these multiple crises? What are your priorities? How do you decide what to tackle first? Well, I think you've described it right um, in that we have multiple challenges. And I keep telling everyone this is not a simple equation, but a simultaneous equation. We don't have the luxury of dealing with one. For instance, climate change. We know climate change is forcing our disasters to be more frequent and more severe. So that's increased our disaster response. It's forced uh, changes in the food chain. And so much of the migration is due to climate change as well. So that adds to it. And then at the same time, we're now in this geopolitical world that's also adding to migration and the testing of our fundamental principles, especially unity and neutrality. And all of that, it's all interwoven. 
add that to a growing feeling of a difference between a north and a south and the crescents and the crosses, that all has kind of come together, I think primarily because we're all under so much pressure. So how we address it is really, let's go back to basics. Um, I happen to think, I grew up in the U.S., and I went to grade school. We did the Pledge of Allegiance every day. I often think if we would get up every morning and repeat our seven fundamental principles and thought about that, that would bring a lot of us closer together. So my role is to demonstrate that in all of my actions and to bring a highlight to the areas where we're acting, doing amazing work uh, around the world to show the work that we are doing and that we are more relevant now than we've ever been. In your campaign video, I remember you said one of the great things about IFRC is that we don't rest on our history. We keep looking what we can do and how we can do it better. In your view, how can we be better in anticipating and responding to crisis and disasters? You know, I think um, we do. I am very proud of our history. I want everyone to know that. I, um, the shoulders of what we've done for generations is much to be proud of, Han. But if you think about how the Federation was founded uh, to deal with the migration program after World War One. And we're now dealing with massive migration projects. Yes, we're doing relying on our history, but we're doing it much better with uh, cash cards, with technology, with uh, listening and work, working together much better neighbor to neighbor. If you look at uh, how national societies are helping their sister and brother national societies to work together, it's pretty remarkable. But we're going to have to, as you said, to anticipate. We're going to, technology is going to be really important on how we monitor it. Recently, I was in Mexico City, uh, and then looking at the Mexican Red Cross's uh, monitoring system it was high tech. It was amazing. And if you all remember, we had a terrible hurricane that didn't come on the East Coast. What usually happens, but the West Coast. They were really able to see it coming. They could see it rapidly go from a category three to a five and what was hitting. So they were able to go reach out and get things better. Go to Bangladesh. Look at their early warning system where they would often lose, and I mean lose, lives of their citizens, hundreds, when a typhoon would happen. And the last few typhoons, because of how they've engaged volunteers the old way, but with technology and the new system, they've lost no one. They've been able to work through the communities using localization and volunteers and technology. There's an example of, yes, we're doing historical work using new technologies combined with the old, and we're saving lives. The process of selecting, electing a president can sometimes be contentious. And you mentioned unity as one of our principles that we should look at and keep working on. What is your plan to unite the 191 national societies? You're right. It, this was probably the most contentious election we've had, at least that I remember, and I've been coming to general assemblies for over 20 years. But as I was sitting there in the GA and I reflect back on it, 
I try to think about the 130 national societies that I talked to before and how much we had in common. Not what we had as our differences, but how much we had in common. So I hope to help with that. Uh, Unity, first of all, is one of my programs is every day I talk to one national society, at least, and hopefully one board member or one commission member to really keep my ear to the ground as to what are the issues that they're finding. So if they have issues, we can address them early on. Um, I hope to demonstrate by uh, where I visit. Uh, I have trips in the Middle East planned, I have Southeast Asia and Africa to give what I put called daylight on hidden crises so that people know that we're just as concerned of what's happening in Ethiopia as we are in Ukraine or Gaza or the Darien Gap. You know, we, we have to show that every human being deserves humanitarian care, regardless of what causes that, and be ready to help to respond. Your election as president is also historic in a way, because it's only the second time that we have a woman president of IFRC. This is great, great news for for me, for people like me. But what does it also say about us as IFRC? Well, You know, I don't think the IFRC is much different than business. Um, I think about, I've had a a long career, and when I first started, there were very few women that held executive roles. But now, as you look around the world, you see more women in higher roles, which means they're becoming a presence of national societies. Think of Europe, and I won't be able to name them all. I think there are more women now presidents than there ever been. Spain the Netherlands, Ireland, Britain, Sweden, Georgia, Norway are the ones that are just off the top of my head. That never happened before. And all of those women becoming presidents of their national societies are grooming themselves to be able to hold this position. So I think we're going to have a bigger pool. We're going to have, we have gender balance for the first time on the board. Uh, And so that allows women to gain the experience that they need to move forward. So um, I'm very excited. Uh, I want to showcase these women, uh, to be sure. And by the same token, uh, I've met a number of younger women who are moving up. We need to mentor them. We need to encourage them. And I would say women, but all youth, we need to do that, all young people. But um, I think... I'm the first of many now that are going forward. I'm going to add one more country to your list, Slovenia, my home country, which has the, a woman president and a woman secretary general. And at Poland's that way, too. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't say Romania. I didn't say Moldova. You know, so we never, trust me, turn the clock back 10 years or even five. No way could you and I come up with that list. Mm-hmm. It's amazing. Fantastic. Yeah. And when you talk about uh, mentoring women, what tools do you think you have at your disposal to do that as president? I know there's Glow Red. Maybe you can talk about that a little. Um, There's Glow Red, but I think there's other tools. And and Glow Red's important because it gives women a chance to network with other women. But I also have the ability to create uh, special task forces, uh, uh, 
committees. Um, I've been out encouraging, making calls for people to nominate women for the commissions and committees that will be elected next year. I think I have a bully platform to identify, see women, see opportunities, and marry the two. And I plan to do it, and I would say, although this is day two in the office, we've created, we'll be announcing two more committees, and they're gender balanced. More in general terms, uh, what do you think is the status of women uh, in leadership positions in the humanitarian sector? Well, we're being tested. It's not like we came in on easy terms. I think if you look now with the ICRC, the Standing Commission, the IFRC, all being headed by women, pretty remarkable. So I think the status is now we're here, now we have to perform. And I must admit, I feel great weight on my shoulders about that, uh, not only because I want to do a great job and I believe so much in the mission, but I also know there are people who are sitting back saying, are women up to this? Do you think you come from the business world primarily? Right. Do you think there's a difference in being a woman leader in the private sector versus the humanitarian sector? I think you're held to a higher standard in both sectors, quite frankly. Um, but uh, probably business in my profession has be had been faster to have women in leadership than I have seen in the humanitarian sector at the highest levels. Um, I've served on uh, two other international boards, and there may be women in in the C-suite, but they're not the secretary general or the chair, you know, the president of the organization. Now, the American Red Cross, that has happened. Gail McGovern's been ours for a number of years. But um, some of the other boards I've been on, no, not so much. But again, I think it's changing because there have been more women now in the way, workforce. And for the most part, you have to have a certain amount of seniority to move into those. And so as the pool of women increases, we're seeing more women serve. Is this something that the humanitarian sector can learn from the private sector? Are there other things that we can learn? I think the humanitarian sector um, probably, yeah, that's a really good question. Um, other things they could learn from the private sector probably would be to be a bit more, I would say, flexible in how women's schedules are, although COVID really helped break that. I mean, prior to COVID, uh, not so much. So I'm seeing now more people being able to work, work remotely, a more sensitivity to family, and not only us seeing it, but demanding that from the new workforce. If you want to get the best and the brightest, you're going to have to be more flexible than you did when I entered the workforce. So I think we're in a new environment for working uh, between use of technology and uh, being more flexible, allowing people to do what they want and workers demanding that. And so if you want, like I said, the best and the brightest, you better be flexible on how you engage them. From what I hear, you certainly are flexible. I understand you're equally comfortable wearing heels, a suit, and pearls and all that, <laughs> yeah. and being yeah. in boardrooms, yeah. as well as wearing work boots and, and the red vest that you're wearing today, yeah. being in shelters uh, with migrants and in conflict situations. Can you talk about that yeah. difference? Um, yeah, I'm, so 
my vest. I was on the Ukrainian Oversight Commission, and uh, I remember being in a shelter where uh, children were being taught to school, and there was this darling little boy, blonde, blue-eyed, sitting, and he was just sitting in the corner, and I went over and talked to him. And, you know, lots of times, two to five kids are kind of shy. They're, they're shy. They don't want to. This little boy hadn't talked in six months. In six months. Still. But he was getting schooling three meals a day, surrounded by people who cared. And I'd like to think that he's now speaking some, but he had a safe place. And um, that's what we provide, you know. And then when I went to Ethiopia, um, and I always tell people I'm a bit ashamed about this, I didn't realize, I knew there was a civil war in Ethiopia. I didn't realize that 1.2 million Ethiopians had been killed in it. I, I had no idea of the depth of it. Uh, my doctor's Ethiopian. We, we talked about the Civil War, but I had no idea the scale. So when I was there in Tigray, and we, we were the first humanitarian convoy to go up past to where the, where the fighting was. And here the, our we had a hospital that was the only hospital within 250 kilometers, and what hadn't been looted was destroyed. Our, ambu- our, our ambulances, the majority of their ambulances had been destroyed due to landmines. They'd lost ambulance and drivers. The branch office been totally looted. Things were all over the floor, papers, just wanton destruction for wanton destruction. And yet, in both places, there were new volunteers, new staff members going there to recreate a wing of the hospital, to get a branch up so they could get things done. And I was just struck with the dedication of our staff and volunteers to serve humanity. Um, It was unbelievable. And there also, I ran into a, a, a... a young person, we call them now, a youth, young person, who was feeding 40 children a day. She would every morning get up and collect food or money so she could get enough food to give the children one meal a day, which you can live on one meal a day. It's not optimum, but she was doing it. Um, And you just realized, or I realized, I mean, that brings it really home to me how important it is that we have a really global focus, that we be much better on getting aid out quickly, and we're going to have to get aid for a more sustained period of time than we have in the past. So I think about the little boy. I think about the people trying to recreate a hospital that had been destroyed. I think about a youth who took on to herself that she could save 40 children. And how could you not want to lead an organization like that? Yes, those are very poignant words. Yes, absolutely. And um, there are many impressions of humani- of the work that the hu- that humanitarian organizations do. And um, one common thinking is that when one gives money to an organization, not enough of it makes it to the people on the ground. What do you say, how do we convince or assure those who give 
that that money does make it to those that need it and that people actually trust us, believe us when we say that. Well, you know, you bring up a really good point. Uh, sometimes they get really frustrated with charities that um, rate other uh, charity rating agencies, like quite from Charity Navigator, who have said, oh, if you don't spend, if you spend over X amount on, quote, overhead, you're not giving aid. Let's go back to my story in Ethiopia. How much aid can we give if we don't have a hospital? How much aid can we give to people seeking asylum or first aid classes or a meal if we don't have a branch office? So, yes, you have every right, and we have an obligation that every CHF dollar, yen, whatever currency you talk about that is, goes to recipients of those we serve is spent appropriately, wisely, and we maximize the value. But you also need to, build, to realize in order to do that efficiently with adequate controls and the right way, we do need to have that hospital, that branch office, that ambulance to transport someone. So it's a combination of both. So how do we assure it? I think we need to tell our story more. I think we need to show people what's happening. We need to have them understand why we spend, how we spend. Um, what is our? We have a great global plan. We need to be more vocal about that. And we're doing some things differently. You know, we now have uh, donor advisory groups that we talk to openly about things. The other thing we've got to do, we have to act with absolute integrity in our actions. We need to hold fraud and corruption, zero tolerance for that. And those who commit that, we need to be sure they are dealt with appropriately and don't have the opportunity to repeat. But there's a lot more good that we can show, a lot more stories we can tell uh, to make people understand that. Um, and I find, for the most part, if you sit down with folks and you, you do explain what we do or if we have an opportunity to take donors out to see, they understand. And at least in, when I first started at the Red Cross, um, after a year or two, I was kind of debating, you know, am I going to continue with my Red Cross career as well? And at the time, there was a very senior member at my, my branch uh, who would, had been on the Board of Governors, which is the highest uh, at the American Red Cross. And he turned to me and he said, Kate, would you want to live in a community where there wasn't a Red Cross? I could add a Red Crescent. And when you think about that very simple question, the answer is, oh. So we build trust, we do the best we can, and we tell our story, and I believe the donors will follow us. You mentioned earlier you've been a volunteer for 40 years, over 40 years. Mm -hmm. Why? I think you've already explained a little bit why, but what does that mean to you? Well, I mean, it's been a, you know, a huge part of my life. There's my family, my career, and Red Cross. And, uh, you know, it means, I won't say everything because my family's there, of course, but it means to me um, an opportunity. I've been lived the most amazing, fortunate life of anybody. Someone may have as good, but not better. And to have been able 
to have the opportunity to give back is important. I've become a better person because of the, my Red Cross friends and the people I've seen and how they give. Uh, it means that. It means that maybe in my own small way, I've made a difference. And I think at the end of the day, we all want to make a difference. It means, it reminds me that I'm a very fortunate woman and that I have the, I've had the opportunity to give back and that I shouldn't take things for granted. Um, I was telling you a funny story about that, my hotel room, that they haven't been able to turn the lights off on it for 48 hours. One could easily get upset that 24 hours a day, you're sleeping in a lit hotel room. But think how many people have no power. Think how many people have no clean water. Why in heaven's name would you get really upset just because the lights are on? So it gives me a balance in my life probably more than anything. You also mentioned earlier you served as the national chairman of volunteers uh, at the American Red Cross. What did you learn about volunteering during that time, and what lessons are you bringing with you? First of all, volunteers work for what I call an emotional paycheck. So the best thing we can give to volunteers is work that matters and recognize them for that work. And that doesn't mean a big plaque. That doesn't mean, you know, a fancy dinner. That means a simple thank you. This matters, and this is why it matters. Um, so I learned that. Second lesson, uh, I grew up in the southwestern part of the United States. My home is on the Mexican border. Uh, we have in my state uh, 13 different uh, Native American tribes or pueblos. So I grew up in a very, very diverse or you know, part of the world. And early on, I realized that what's really important is not only do we need to be in our local communities, we need to look like our local communities, and that culture matters. Culture matters a lot. And so in our volunteers, we need to understand the culture. We need to listen. And as much as possible, we need to reflect those we're serving, or just some of them. And that volunteers come in all sizes, shapes, and ages. You know, from the young volunteers who I've been, I've been to events where I'm not even sure they were in grade school. I mean, that they were helping out or doing whatever to people in their 90s that I gave away a 75-year pin at one point. That is not one of my life goals but uh, <laughs> for service. But people realize they can still give. It, it changes what they can give, but still we can be inclusive in our volunteers. We can find a place for anything. If someone who studied accounting and is an accountant can grow up to be president of the IFRC, mm-hmm. there's a place for everybody. Absolutely. You told me a story about when you worked on the Hurricane Katrina aftermath. You told me a story about the retired firefighters mm-hmm. from, from New, New York, York City. From 9-11. Um, again, I will get all lumpy. You know, the firefighters who went through 9-11 paid a terrible price, right? They lost co-workers. They weren't able to save the people they wanted to save. Many of them had health issues. And Katrina hit, and we deployed because at that time, 
people don't realize we had five major hurricanes. There were lots going on. And I wish I could do a Brooklyn accent because it's a strong accent. And I heard these two men, you know, helping. At a, it was a disaster relief center where people came in to get aid. And so as the National Chair of Volunteers, I went to go over and thank them. And I said, you know, just this is great. You know, I can tell you're not from <laughs> you're not from around here. You don't have a southern accent. And they turned to me and said, no, thank you for giving us our lives back because we have the ability now to see, to be good and see what we, difference we can make. And I often think about them, that here, we, you know, what they went through, but they found a home in the American Red Cross and we're back doing public service. What a gift to that community. And quite frankly, what a gift to them. You alluded to the part of the U.S. where you're from. It's Phoenix, Arizona. And I understand last summer, this past summer, you experienced 54 days above 43 degrees Celsius. Mm -hmm. And one day at 50C. My goodness. Yeah. You really are living on the front lines of climate change. Yeah, I've, I've lived there essentially my entire life, and we've never had temperatures like that. Um, first of all, I call it an invisible blizzard because people don't realize how dangerous the heat is. Um, you know, snow, at least you can see, rain you can see, wind you can feel. And really, heat, people don't understand. Um, and uh, our state plant is the sore cactus and many of you have probably seen if you think the big tall cactus with the big arms um, and to get the two big arms you have to be 100 years old and how they survive is when it rains in the winter we get a, we get a whopping seven inches a year they collect the water and it stores it in the cactus it was so hot that it essentially cooked the cactus and these cactus who were over 100 years old, you would see them by the side of the road because they couldn't survive. Uh, we've never seen that, ever. I mean, it just didn't. And, you know, as I said, the silent, because we had to have cooling stations for people, people who didn't have uh, cooling in their homes. We had to open up shelters for it. And I think I mentioned to you, I was coming out of my house is off a pretty main drag that street that has you know, the bus system. And there was a man who obviously had passed out from dehydration and they were slowly pulling the shroud over him. He did not survive. And I forget the number of people we had that died to heat and many had heat stroke. So it's real. And that tells me that, you know, we're going to have to figure out how we're going to adapt. And we're going to have to adapt, uh, prepare differently and adapt and think about responses. And as I've talked and gone around the world, you see the impact of on the islands. So they're slowly sinking away or the salt water is permeating the island and they can no longer grow food. So it's creating a hunger crisis, which creates migration issues. So... Climate change has got to be one of the things we, we talk about. Not only talk about, we have to act. We need to educate. And not only, we can't just respond to the back end and more disaster stronger. How do people adapt? 
I think we can do a little mitigation probably, but adaptation is going to be absolutely key and the response on the back. So, yeah, um, we always kind of thought that we lived in a place where we didn't really have disasters. You know, you don't have hurricanes and yeah, in Arizona. And, and, and <laughs> the desert, the Sonoran yeah. Desert, you know, that, that really doesn't happen, and we don't have earthquakes. And we were pretty smug. We've gotten over that. As you mentioned, uh, climate, migration are closely connected. Both are our priorities for IFRC. And just yesterday, we launched uh, our Not Alone campaign, which highlights um, the work that our teams do uh, around um, humanitarian service points. I think there are over 600 of them around the world. So I also remember you mentioned, I think already, you visited the Darien Gap. It was in Panama, through how we respond to that, yes. How did that inform your perspective on migration? Well, um, migration is not new to me. Um, I'll kind of go back. I'll come to that. Uh, My mother was in public health, and this would have been in the late 1950s, early 60s, uh, was a real advocate for migrant workers in the fields in Arizona. So as a very small child, I saw the plight of migrant workers, and uh, they were economic migrants right at the time. Um, but still, uh, I remember my mother being absolutely irate over the living conditions and the lack of good water and sanitation. And I remember her working on her presentation to the state legislature on what changes can be. So to a certain degree, migration has been a passion of mine for a long time. I grew up with, you know, Cesar Chavez walking the streets. Um, I realize for some people that's old old news, but he was a very activist in it. And so when I was in Panama and then went to Mexico, up to Hermosillo, up to Nogales, which is on the border, I was, although I wasn't shocked, I, no, I wasn't surprised. I was still shocked at what people will put up with and do to get a better life for their family and their children and how terribly difficult it is. And uh, I think one of the things I told you was about a baby who came out, of, we were told about a baby who came out of the jungle that had been 10-month-old, covered with mosquito bites, dehydrated, and the aid that we gave and I remember ringing in my ears, my Spanish isn't good enough, but one of the aid workers saying to me, we had charging stations and fresh water, saying to me, the migrant said, this is the first time I've been treated as a human being and not as an animal. We have an obligation to give humanitarian aid. But as you know, migration is very controversial around the world. And I think we as an organization, I'm so pleased we are talking about it, talking about our role, and seeing that we do have a role to play, because this is not an issue that's going to go away in the short term. In your long career Mm -hmm. that we've just touched upon, I'm sure, (laughs) did you have role models, people who inspired you? I know that we asked you if you could bring an item with you to show us. 
Well, and, and I kind of referenced yes, it. I brought yes. a picture of my with my mother from. Uh, Please let us let yeah. us see it. Mm -hmm. So she's ninety five in this picture. Uh -huh. um, she's gone now, but uh, she I. You know, early on, she, my mother was a nurse. Uh, the Red Cross did, well, so Red Cross nursing, my aunt was was a Red Cross nurse. Um, she served in World War II as a nurse, and the Red Cross played a role there as well. I still have her ribbon from coming home from World War II that the Red Cross gave uh, returning soldiers yeah. when she was a nurse. And uh, she was absolutely instrumental in just opening my eyes to what so many of the issues that we at the Red Cross have. So she would be one. Uh, Todd Langley, he was a CEO of Arizona Bank, big, and he, he was the one that talked about neighbors, helping neighbors, and he was just amazing. Uh, a man named Bill Bomback and his wife Irma was a very famous uh, writer and uh, performed on television, kind of a humorist. Uh, and Bill was from our chapter and became national chair of uh, disasters. Mm -hmm. And the fact that he left uh, his very cushy life to to make disaster response uh, faster, better was really. But locally, I owe my re I'm here because of two women. The first would be Suzanne Nystrom, chapter exec in Phoenix. And when I first came on board to help with some financial statement issues, she was the one that pushed to get me on the board. And then we were what call we were what called a metro chapter. So we were the fifth largest chapter at that time in the US or branch. And she pushed for me to be chair. That was unheard of. First of all, I was... Because a, you were a woman? I was a woman, and I was about 33 years old. Uh -huh. It didn't happen, uh -huh. but she had faith in me. And then a woman named Kay Walton, who ran our service to armed forces, and we were in regions at the time. She came down and saw a board meeting and thought I had potential beyond Phoenix mm -hmm. and mentored me to be on a series of what we called regional chairs, then ultimately onto the national board. And then when I was on the board, Elizabeth Dole, who is a pretty famous name within the American Red Cross and uh, was a senator, her, her husband was a senator, he ran for president. She was an amazing uh, person mm -hmm. and she was president and, uh, and I watched her and how she was able to combine uh, being, I would call her a velvet hammer. hammer. She was stern, but with the Southern grace that you never mm -hmm. knew. Uh, very interested in people. Mm -hmm. Wanted to know everything about you and cared and mm -hmm. remembered. Mm -hmm. So I was blessed with a series of people who were just unbelievable. So you spoke about your mother who also inspired you. But you yourself are a mother. Yes. Is there any advice or insights that you can give to other parents who are struggling between a career, home life, and maybe volunteering? Um, well, I can tell you two funny stories about my, um, both would be with my, my youngest daughter. Uh, when I was chair of the Phoenix chapter, she was 18 months old to, I don't know, three. 
and she tells of it. Oh, yeah, mom would take me, and I just would sleep on the back and take a nap. <laughs> and she, she she doesn't. And at the time, I was feeling a bit guilty, and she just loved it. She, she tells that story. And then when she was in uh, junior high school, where she went on Fridays, the moms would show up and pass out pizza as a fundraiser and I, I was my turn and I couldn't I had a Red Cross board meeting in, in D.C. and I was, I was kind of beside me oh, oh Vera I'm, I'm so sorry and she stood with her legs apart and her hands on her head she says oh mom what do you think is more important feeding pizza to seventh graders or helping the Red Cross get over it <laughs> and so I think part of it you know, uh, some of the advice is your kids get it. You know, if, if you talk about it and show them and include them when you can, they they get it. And then, you know, it sounds, this is woman to woman. Certain things Jones don't worry about. For years, I had no idea what was really behind the living room couch. I just didn't worry about it. You know, I mean, there's just some things you close the closet and get on with it. Um, you know, I think we women sometimes think we're responsible for more things than we need to be. And just kind of focus on the important stuff. And with the Red Cross, and I will make a pitch for our youth, with the Red Cross, pretty soon they can be involved while you're involved. You have something great to talk about, and you can talk about our fundamental principles, which is a really way of saying you can talk about the values. And without sounding terribly preachy, but you can. And so I think it's a great place for a mom to be. Very inspiring. (laughs) Thank you for that. (laughs) Um, being a little bit, I'm not going to say realistic, I'm going to say non-pessimistic okay. <laughs> with everything that's going on in the world. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, who inspires you today or what keeps you going? What brings you hope that things can get better? Um, well, I would be not true if I didn't say there are moments that I go this is just a bit overwhelming right but you know what does inspire me is some of the stories I told you the youth who was able to look for 40 kids and keep them alive the people who were giving great care to a little boy who hadn't talked in six months you know um, that gives me hope I spent time I have actually five grandchildren they're smart. They're much more technologically savvy than I am. I can see the, their enthusiasm. That gives me hope. And you're going to laugh at me, and you're going to. Everyone's going to say, "Oh yeah, right." But truly, whenever I come to a large meeting of Red Cross, Red Crescents, and I look at how they respond and how innovative, think about the Red Crescent of Egypt. Think what their life was like October 1st, pre-October 7th. Think what their life is like now. Think what they've accomplished. That gives me hope. They, they responded. We were innovative. We're out there. We're making a difference. So that's what you have to look at is uh, surround your pe- yourself by people who are trying to make a difference, not just complaining about what's going wrong and seeing the bad side. Surround yourself with people who say, I can go there and I can make a difference, even if it's only to one person. At least you've made their life better. So that's how I try to, to focus on it. And I hope the lights are off in my hotel room tonight. So <laughs> I hope so, too, for your <laughs> sake. 
The name of this podcast, as you know, is The People in the Red Vest. Mm -hmm. As we said, you're wearing one. I'm wearing mine. Yes. 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 What does the red vest symbolically mean to you? I think trust, that when we go out, people trust that we're going to do the right thing. Obviously, we bring hope to a number of people. That continuity, that we've been doing this for well over 100 years, and we're still there trying to make a difference. So continuity, it means that. Um, and it also means I, I'm going to strive to be a better person while I wear it. Thank you, Kate. Sure. For being with us, for sharing your expertise and insights and for letting us to get to know you better. Well, thank you for the questions and the opportunity to tell my story. Thanks for listening to People in the Red Vest, a podcast of inspiring stories as told by people from the IFRC. In our next episode, join us for a deep dive into the humanitarian consequences of the ongoing conflict in Ukraine with IFRC's Regional Director for Europe and Central Asia, Birgitte Bischoff-Ebesen. This podcast was produced by Malcolm Lucard and me, Alexandra Sasha Gorishek, with production and engineering support from Damien Naylor. Promotion and marketing by Maxime Bouchard, graphic design by Valentina Shapiro, and web support from Chris Aqua and Patrick Tai. For more inspiring stories, subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. <laughs>